Welcome to Black Muse Podcast. Black Muse, where creatives from the worlds of jazz, hip-hop, gospel, politics, sports, fashion, theater, and literature engage in the lively art of conversation. I am so excited to be here with you today with a young man who so many know in our neck of the woods. He is a filmmaker, a documentarian, a professor. We'll talk about so many things that he does. He's an author. The man is a true Renaissance man. I'm speaking of none other than Stan West. Welcome to Black Muse Podcast. Thank you, Doris. Uh, thanks for the kind words, too. Your video is frozen. I Let don't you know if press it right quick. It does that from time to time. That's okay. Technology is good when it works. Indeed. <laughs> well, welcome to Black Muse. I'm so excited to talk with you. We always have such lively conversations, Stan. And I think what I would like to do uh, right off the bat, before we even get started, is to let our listeners hear something that we're going to be talking about. And maybe what we'll do is have you, we'll listen to this and then have our listener, have you explain it to our listener. Okay. Okay, Sounds here good. we go. All right, stay tuned. Oops, I'm sorry, just one moment. We're gonna, okay, here we are. Giver by James Baldwin. If the hope of giving is to love the living, the giver risks madness in the act of giving. Some such lesson I seemed to see in the faces that surrounded me, needy and blind, unhopeful, unlifted. What gift would give them? The gift to be gifted? The giver drift than those clamoring for the gift. If they cannot claim it, if it is not there, if their empty fingers beat the empty air and the giver goes down on his knees in prayer, knows that all of his giving has been for naught and nothing was ever what he thought and turns in his guilty bed to stare at the starving multitudes standing there, and rises from his bed to curse at heaven, he must yet understand that to whom much is given, much will be taken, and justly so. <laughs> I cannot tell how much I 
And that, my friends, was The Giver for Burtis by James Baldwin, recited by Sam West. Sam, what is The Giver? What's your fascination with The Giver and James Baldwin, the man? Well, uh, it appears on page 137 of my book called James Baldwin's Black Lives Blues Are Mine. And it opened a James Baldwin uh, neo-opera at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra a couple years ago by Renee Baker uh, for Black History Month. And essentially, it's a two-level uh, piece by Baldwin. On one level, it is uh, paying homage to his mother named Burtis. Uh, but it is also a look by Baldwin, a racial critic on America uh, that some might spell with KKK uh, about uh, how it had treated its uh, disenfranchised black, brown, red, yellow, uh, and even Irish folks. Uh, so that was my take on what the giver meant and why it was important. I believe that uh, uh, composer uh, Renee Baker invited me to read this because she thought that I might be able to add a little flavor, put a little life into why it mattered. Uh, this uh, poem by the late great black gay expatriate writer James Baldwin to open up uh, this Black History Month opera uh, that was sold out at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and I felt honored that she did it, uh, you know, included me for that year, and then the following year for another expatriate named Josephine Baker. And I come from several generations of expatriates, and five years ago I presented uh, a piece about James Baldwin, a little bit in French, uh, at the James Baldwin Conference at American University of Paris, uh, in front of his family and Baldwin scholars, and even my family was there, including my French-speaking son, who uh, cringed a little bit at some of my pronunciation, but he was at least pleased to see that the old guy had a little, little flavor and a little courage to, you know, uh, try out his hand at telling a story in, in French and, and mostly in, in English. Uh, but uh, James Baldwin's Black Lives Blues are mine, the title of this takes a two-track look at how Baldwin wrote about police brutality, which is what he called it. And I looked at his nonfiction essays primarily and how he had conversations with his family. Now, I met Baldwin in 1986, a year before he died. And I thought after he died, he might want me to revisit his writings about police brutality. And just as he had conversations with uh, his family, he might want me to have conversations with my family too. And the book includes those conversations with my straight, gay, and even one black Mexican Italian trans rabbi named Ramona Hernandez Perez, and every family should have one of those. And in my family, Ramona is ours. 
That is wonderful. And I love the title of your book. I can't help but ask you, you know, the blues and James Baldwin are synonymous because he's actually somebody who's a self-labeled blues man. Uh, but yet he didn't sing and professed that he knew nothing about music. Uh, but yet he believed that his writing and his work in portraying our culture in language that we understand was very much synonymous with the work of blues singers. Talk to us about that. What was it about him that made him feel like his work was about, was, was, was parallel to the work of a blues singer? You know, I wrote about that uh, a couple times in, in the book. And uh, he had several works that blues was in the title and blues was also in the content. And you're right that blues was part of his themes for his content uh, often. And sometimes jazz, and of course, mm -hmm. blues is the um, foundation for jazz. And what people often don't know is that blues did not originate in Alabama and Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I, -S 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 -I -P -P -I, but it originated 200 years ago in the savannas of Africa, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Mali. Uh, 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 Dr. Sam Floyd, who founded uh, the Center for Black Music Research, argued that it began, and he had lots of statistical uh, and sociolinguistic uh, and musical uh, data to uh, make the case that it began, he said, along the Senegambian border. Truth mm -hmm. told, it began in all of those African places around the same time 200 years ago. And many Africans told me that they don't mind that African Americans take credit for creating the blues in slave states 100 years ago uh, and popularizing it. But in fact, they created it 100 years prior, but they call it folk music and still do. And if you go to Mali, places like Timbuktu, you can still hear blues. There was a, a movie nominated for an Academy Award about six or seven years ago that opened at the Chicago International Film Festival simply called Timbuktu by mm -hmm. uh, an, an, an African filmmaker from that region. And it included blues. And it talked about how, among other things, that there was a, a sacred music to the blues and there was a sacred love and appreciation, but for fundamentalists, in this case, uh, uh, ISIS-type fighters who took over uh, parts of Mali then and even now. Um, they were attacking it uh, with a kind of a 13th century medieval uh, zeal, thinking that it was very Western or uh, something that was against the, uh, Allah because it was pleasurable and enjoyable just as they were attacking soccer or basketball or anything that people were doing that was bringing them joy in the savannas of, of Mali in this central North African uh, place where there's often uh, lots of pain and suffering and a history of colonialism. So for them, blues and for us too, uh, sort of is a, is a musical landscape, a backdrop for pain, suffering, but it also has a kind of, uh, what's it called, 
happiness too, because there's a joy about blues. And I learned that the hard way because like many African-Americans, uh, I thought about the blues, you know, certainly in terms of the music, there was a, a obvious uh, enjoyment of it, but the lyrics to me seemed at least on the surface, rather depressing and simplistic until I looked deeper and I found out that much of the blues was acts of resistance. Um, and, yeah. and, and to me, and even like Muddy Waters talking about, I'm a man. He That's wasn't right. just saying that he was growing up. He was saying that white folks in the South could not call this grown ass man a boy because he was a man and he was going to stand up for his rights. And so th that yeah. was an act of resistance. And Mamie uh, Smith, Bessie Smith's sister, who had the very first blues hit in 1919 called the Crazy Blues, sold 75,000 copies. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that? A bestseller. She also <laughs> talked about the blues in terms of resistance and fighting against uh, chauvinism and uh, physical abuse by guys and that kind of thing. And so blues has always had a kind of a social protest, uh, a part of it. It's not always social protest, but mm -hmm. it is. Even in, in a communist social country protest. like Cuba, uh, mm -hmm. there is blues. And the blues that the Cubans talk yeah. about is how the, the Guantanamo base that I, I visited uh, in Guantanamo gives them the blues because it too is a symbol of colonialism. So, so yes, uh, blues is a, is a backdrop for pain and suffering, but it's also part of the black prophetic anthem where uh, Baldwin was calling out the fire next time. So you better listen. Oh, you better yes. listen. But yes. I remember way back when, even James Baldwin, and the fact that you bring up Bessie Smith, he that was the woman that was the blues singer that he most aligned himself with. I think about a photograph that is one of my favorite photographs. Robert Kennedy, I believe he was in New York. I'm not certain of it. But literally, as far as the eye could see, were hundreds of Black men holding signs, I am a man. And this, he gave this speech and they wanted him to know that was their message. And I heard a writer, Dan, talk about how when you look at an artist and think about blues and, and acts of resistance and civil rights and all of that, that the blues, a lot of people look at blues as such an emotional thing. It's, a, it's an outcry of all the pain and suffering. But this writer, took a different view on it. And I appreciated what he did. He said, because as an artist, the one thing that an artist usually has when they begin to create is control, control of their tools, control of their canvas or whatever medium they're working on. And so when you think about uh, the blues, it's not just simply an emotional piece. And that's why Baldwin can really be compared, I think, to artists like that, because at least for the greater part of his career, he had that kind of control over his voice and what he wanted to say. Now, there are many people that said as he got older and his last few published pieces that he had lost his way or lost his the control of his art form. Um, but we are thankful that at least for the purposes of this conversation, 
uh, his writings on police brutality refresh for me. His uh, writings on police brutality started early and were really very thorough. Do you remember the first piece he wrote on police brutality, a report from the occupied territory? I, I reported on that. Uh, it's somewhere in my book, but yes, I did read that. I don't even know if it was the first, but it was certainly one of the more uh, read and popularized yeah. uh, pieces. But yes, I remember that. And I remembered something else uh, at the tail end of his career uh, that gave him the blues. And that was that uh, many whites said that he was too angry. And mm -hmm. many blacks, especially black militants, including some of my Black Panther friends, said that he was not angry enough. Mm -hmm. And when I met him in 1986, when my writing teacher, Ishmael Reed, said, come meet Jimmy. I asked him about that over a couple cognacs. I got my, <laughs> my, my courage to, to ask him about that, you know, after pleasantries. And I told him that mm -hmm. I had read a couple of his books that were on my parents' bookcase. And me and my parents were cool with him, but some of my Black Panther friends, not so much. They said mm -hmm. he wasn't angry enough. They said he was a cafe revolutionary. They said he was sipping coffee and tea in the Parisian <laughs> cafes while the uh, Deep South was burning. They said he wasn't angry enough. And you know what he told me, Doris? He looked me in my eye and he told me, you show me a black man who's not angry and I'll show you a fool nigga who's lost. Well, I sat down thinking that maybe Hig was thinking that I was a fool in for asking him some stupid stuff like that. But you know what? I got his attention and he certainly got mine. And this, this inner turmoil that uh, sometimes uh, people call a jihad, an internal struggle about whites thinking he's uh, too angry, blacks thinking he's not angry enough, was what he wrote about at the tail end of his question in a deep, rich, layered way, uh, was what guided his writings in uh, 1979, that uh, wound up being in the Academy-nominated documentary by Raul Peck, I am not your Negro. It also wound <laughs> up in the uh, piece that was uh, won an Academy Award for uh, an actress, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, that mm -hmm. he wrote, that was about police brutality. He was mm -hmm. angry, he was plenty angry, but he was also cool. He was too cool to go around pimp slapping folks. <laughs> But he used his words as a weapon. He used his blues news that we could all use. And mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to do. So it gave him the blues, how sometimes people didn't appreciate him. But you know what? I ain't gonna lie. Sometimes it gives me the blues too. But uh, I'm tough. I can handle it. You can handle it. I know you can. How would you compare his messaging uh, then, so many years ago, with the messaging of protesting today as it relates to police brutality. I mean, back then he was writing for, you know, it was, it was what they called a plea for the recognition of our common humanity. That sounds a lot like what I hear today coming from the activist community. This is why it makes him so relevant. Is there anything that you see in all of his writings that we're missing today. Yes, and that's why there's a Baldwin Renaissance and maybe my timing was just right for James Baldwin's Black Lives Blues or mine because first of all, he called 
refresh your audio and video. Oh, I like his term better. You, so repeat I, I that think for me because is, we lost you. Yeah, uh, so he, he called it police brutality and we call it police misconduct. So, so even his terminology uh, was more precise. And so, yes, it is very relevant. And he was, as you pointed out, an ethical humanist who, yes, he had some uh, some gospel religious upbringing, but it was bigger than that. It was more universal than that, which is why he left in 1946 with less than 50 bucks in his pocket to go to Paris uh, because he liked white guys and they weren't playing that in New York City, but in Paris and even in parts of Turkey, he was able to do that and still apply his trade and tell his stories and talk about oppression, multiple oppressions, oppressions against Muslims. I mean, you know, today Gaza is on fire and I'm sure that, you know, he would have strong feelings about that. I even wrote about that in my book because I visited Gaza. I went to Gaza with a guy named too. Michael Moore. And mm. so, you know, when, when I think about mm -hmm. uh, this, this very small place, I think it's mm -hmm. less than what, uh, seven miles long and there's more than a million people in this toxic place uh, uh, of a kind of Israeli apartheid. Um, it's an incendiary place. And now it literally and figuratively uh, and physically, it is on fire by the Israeli military because yeah. Hamas was firing rockets at uh, uh, Israelis. And I saw uh, the pain of the Israelis when it, it fell into a synagogue, I believe in a place called Ashkedon. Uh, which is very sad. Again, I have a rabbi in my own family. So these kind of, you know, atrocities on, on both sides are disturbing. But who's right, who's wrong, who's dead? There are hundreds of Palestinians uh, who have been slaughtered, mostly non-combatants, and there have been uh, uh, dozens of Israelis, most of them non-combatants. It's always the w women and children, not the guys with guns uh, from these kind of ideological land wars, ethnic cleansing situations who die. It's, it's not the guys with guns, it's the women and children. And so, you know, and I think all of would have something to say about that. And I know he had something to say about how Muslims in, in, in Paris and throughout France were being mistreated, were given second-class treatment. I know he had something to say about Algerians and Moroccans from North Africa and the kind of the colonial struggles that they were fighting with. He wrote about that. Those were also in some of his essays, and they fell within this idea, this bailiwick of police brutality, uh, state-sponsored. Why do you feel that police brutality was such a big issue for Baldwin? I mean, when you even think about how he framed the problem, so many decades ago at that time, he felt there would never be any real um, solution to the problem as long as the police departments were investigating themselves. This is exactly what we're dealing with today. It is, and the piece that I broke off is uh, the mental health issue because many of the people who are police misconduct victims are often folks who are troubled, who have some mental illness issues. And often some of the police that are doing these dastardly deeds are also troubled and also suffer from mental illness. So what I'm trying to do in a not so much point your finger at one group or another is to bring up this idea that both groups could be and often are troubled and need help, need support. And uh, there is some documentation about that. There was one even local uh, woman, because many of them increasingly are not guys, 
neighborhood women uh, in Chicago's south suburbs was uh, acting up and acting out on the Elgin Expressway. And she had a little pen knife, but she was several yards away from police. Uh, and she was just trying to get some attention. She was really crying out for help. And instead of people subduing her and uh, the police arriving with a mental health practitioner to talk her down and to de-escalate the situation, they shot her dead. And there's increasing uh, uh, cases of that. The list of women killed by cops grows. Uh, on social media, a commentator named Carol Jenkins uh, shared on April 18, 2018, uh, 2018, an update about how uh, a law professor, Kimberly Crenshaw, with Rhonda Dormius, the mother of the 23-year-old woman, shot to death by police in her home while she cradled her small son. The family of Corin Games was later awarded $37 million. Um, this idea that lots of women uh, who might be troubled, who might be uh, poor, are being uh, increasingly targeted. They're shooting black and brown and red women, children, and men like dogs, like deer. Some five decades after you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King's death uh, shook Baldwin so much that he wrote about King, Malcolm, and Medgren such a poetic, passionate way. Some five decades later, some would argue that maybe Baldwin's words were like graffiti on the walls of resistance. Now, they could be wrong. Those words and images are still apt. The New York Times, Holland Carter, for instance, reported on March 27, 2018. March for our lives, the student-driven protest against gun violence. So the issue of gun violence, which we're seeing again uh, and again and again and again. Just in Chicago this weekend, 48 people were shot. A two-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old yesterday was shot of 61st and King Drive. How would King feel about that? Shot while she was walking her D-O-G, walking her dog. How low can you go? The Sacramento <laughs> protest over the fatal shooting of Stephon Clark, for example, had he survived that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been there walking, talking, New York Times says, listening, present as he was for countless body on the line campaigns for social justice in the 50s and 60s. So the proliferation of guns, the militarization of police, uh, and even gangs, uh, this sort of acceptance of gun violence uh, is, is something that has become toxic and woven into the fabric of this violent place that we call America that he might spell that is Baldwin with three Ks, KKK, because it's that kind of place. Wow, you are, you are, you are explaining to us or describing to us what Baldwin would have called, what, what, what he called the blues as truth. This is truth. These are facts. This is what we're dealing with every day. Baldwin was a bit sinister. Um, you know, he, he, he was suspicious, okay? He said that we're not gonna, we're, as long as we try to highlight these issues and pull the cover off of them, that white guilt sets in that as long as white guilt sets in, there will always be this attempt to, you know, put processes in place to keep black people down because white people in general or Americans in general want an exalted feeling of themselves in the world. And one way that they have historically attempted to conquer that 
is by keeping down Black Americans. And red people. In light of that, people. providing you accept his hypothesis on that, do you think that we're ready as a country? Well, we're ready, uh, as we could see. We are ready, but is no, the I mean, ready? we, as, as citizens of the U.S., as you could tell, there were 3,500 demonstrations of people who were ready last year, uh, mostly in this country, but in 50 other nations as well. We are ready on the heels of all the uh, police uh, shootings last year. Uh, we are ready. Uh, and we're going to be ready. Uh, there's been a change of what's it called regime change in Washington, D.C. We are ready. There's change is coming. We're ready. We've been ready. So, yes, uh, on a cautiously optimistic note, I have to say that Americans, even skeptical and even cynical, um, not necessarily sinister Americans, but cynical ones are ready uh, reluctantly for maybe the wrong reasons for their own survival, but still I'll take it anywhere I can get it as long as you're ready and there will be change. There will be peace because it is time. It is way past time. And I believe that uh, that might be the kind of blues truth that Baldwin could live with. And knowing that finally these fools get it. You know. <laughs> we are talking with Stan West on Black Muse podcast. And we're having a conversation about Stan's new book, his brand new book. Tell us the name of your book. James Baldwin's Black Lives Blues Are Mine. James Baldwin. And we've been talking about James Baldwin, his own pain, his own blues. This was a man born on August 2nd in 1924 in Harlem Hospital. And that is the bond I will forever have with James Baldwin. I too was born in Harlem Hospital in a neighborhood that shaped us. He was an illegitimate child. His mother, Emma Burtis Jones, was not yet 20 years old. And for a short while, the boy would become the greatest of all African-American writers named James Jones. In 1927, Emma Jones married David Baldwin, a transplant from the South and a much older man, possibly born from the Emancipation of 1863. His stepson, James Jones, became James Arthur Baldwin. James Baldwin was a teenager when his mother told him that David was not his biological father, and James was never to learn who that man was. The news came to him as a great disappointment. Baldwin told an interviewer once, when he was about 50, that he never had a childhood. And one meaning of that statement has to be that he was too busy helping raise other children to be one himself. The Baldwin family eventually included nine kids. What an imagination that he must have. First of all, growing up in that community of Harlem, and at those times, you know, Harlem was rich with history. You could walk on any corner and there would be a Stan West, educated, accomplished, giving a history lesson with people standing around for three hours sometimes. That was commonplace. Stan, why don't we bring that back? I think we are. There is a, a Black renaissance. I know Time Magazine earlier this year during Black History Month uh, did a, a a cover story with several writers talking about the Black Renaissance, the resurgence. Uh, part of it is because of the resistance that we talked about uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, but part of it is also cultural uh, too, uh, on, on the culture of, of music and art and uh, sculpture and all kinds of uh, ways of expression 
that are positive, uplifting, nurturing. Uh, so yes, there there is a renaissance, and you know there always has been, and that too is the blues. That the blues truth, you know, because the thing in the blues is that there's a part of it where somebody done me wrong. There's always something in a blues song where somebody done somebody me wrong. done somebody wrong. Exactly, you know, <laughs> and it could be the singer, something that they did, and now they're paying for it. Oh, well, you know, but it's always somebody done me wrong. Uh, that's right. That's so right. That, that's a blues truth. That you- Black Muse Podcast is a Chicago West Community Music Center production. Chicago West Community Music Center is known as the music school where West Side youth become global citizens. The Chicago West Community Music Center delivers high quality contemporary music instruction to underserved youth across the Chicago area. For more than 20 years, the center's music programs have enriched young lives while strengthening bonds within the community. The rigorous music programs prepare students to play, learn theory, read, and attend master classes as a preparation to move from private lessons to performing in its community orchestra. The center affiliated with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's African-American Network offers lessons and performance opportunities to over a thousand students annually in classical, blues, jazz, and other genres. The long-term partnership between CWCMC and the Berklee College of Music in Boston allows students to participate in the Berklee City Music Pulse program. This This cutting edge curriculum centered around present day music styles and instruments that youth tend to select while developing theoretical listening, improvisational and performance skills. You can go to cwcmc.org to find out more about Chicago West Community Music Center where you'll see opportunities for you to volunteer as well as to donate. We are back with Stan West for, uh, as we wind down this interview, Stan West has been sharing all the juicy tidbits of his new book, brand new, brand spanking new book. Tell everybody where they can purchase the book. It's on Kendall Hunt, which is an educational publisher, and it is an ebook only. I happen to have an author's hard copy, which they give me a couple copies of, and that's what I'm holding here. Uh, but it has a cover on ebook and even in this particular author's copy that's by Raymond Anthony Thomas, uh, who I know you work with at Johnson Publishing Company. Many years. Stunning uh, cover by a a renowned Chicago painter. And Mm -hmm. I just wanted to sort of share one thing because you mentioned David Baldwin, uh, his stepfather, but it's also his brother's name. He was very, very close with his brother. He wrote Mm -hmm. lots of letters to his brother. Matter of fact, he wrote to his brother and talked to his brother a lot about police Mm -hmm. misconduct. And I just have a couple sentences. Uh, Mm -hmm. As he explained to his brother in a letter in the summer of 1955, writing should do something, said biographer Ed Pavlik. Baldwin said, I wanna be stretched, shook up to overreach myself and to make you feel that way too you know what doris me too amen 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 we need more of that in our community for sure is there any other aspect of the book that you'd like to touch on before we close 
just that uh, Baldwin was misunderstood, mis not appreciated as much, and, and as much as he should have. And you mentioned Robert Kennedy. Uh, he and Lorraine Hansberry, two gay bisexual folks, met with Robert Kennedy because Kennedy, like many white liberals, said, well, what do Negroes really want? And uh, when they started telling him, uh, Kennedy got all red faced. That is Robert Kennedy. And uh, uh, Lorraine Hansberry walked out and Baldwin just rolled his eyes. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to let you know that uh, the issues then are the issues now, and we're still struggling and grappling with them. But I do believe that there is in this epidemic, this racial, viral, economic awakening, there is uh, a reckoning that is simultaneous. Uh, and so I do uh, believe that there is some light coming from this darkness. Uh, so thank God for that. You know, I would agree. I absolutely would agree. They say the wheels of justice turn slow, and they are slow, but change is a coming. And that I do believe. Stan West, I want to thank you so much for joining Black Muse Podcast. Well, thank you. I don't know if I was colored or colorful. How about both? Right. <laughs> you never disappoint. Never disappoint. I'm so excited to talk to you, and we'll be sure and have you back soon. Well, thank you so much, Doris. I appreciate it. <laughs>